every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk for Wednesday, the 11th of October. This is the podcast where we get right to the heart of some of the top business and finance stories of the day with our expert panel of guests. And thank you for making this show one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the minutes from the US Federal Reserve's last interest rate setting meeting, at which officials held borrowing costs at a 22-year high, show policymakers have little urgency to raise rates again. The minutes reported that all officials are still committed to proceeding carefully on future rate decisions. However, the minutes also showed that FOMC members expressed little appetite for cutting interest rates anytime soon, particularly as inflation remains well above their 2% target. The future of OpenAI remains uncertain this morning. Staff at OpenAI have called on the board of the artificial intelligence company to resign after the shock dismissal of former boss at Sam Altman. As of last night, 747 employees out of 770 had called for the board to quit. The letter's signatories, who include senior staff, say they may resign themselves if their demands are not met. Venture capitalists backing the generative artificial intelligence startup were also exploring legal measures to force the board to reverse course. But as of yesterday, the board remained resolute and was prepared to test employees' willingness to quit. The annual inflation rate in Hong Kong rose to 2.7% in October, accelerating from 2.2% in the previous month and above market expectations. It was the highest reading since September 2022. The underlying inflation rate edged down to 1.7% from a prior 1.8%. On a monthly basis, the CPI advanced 1%, marking the largest rise since October 2021 and up from 0.4% growth in September. More than three quarters of the foreign money that flowed into China's stock market in the first seven months of the year has left. The sharp selling in recent months put net purchases by offshore investors on course for the smallest annual total since 2015. That was the first year it became easy for international investors to put their money into mainland China with the opening of the Stock Connect scheme. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield and Nitin Dialdis, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website. You'll find that at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and that's where you'll also find my daily newsletter containing updates on the latest business and finance news from across the Asia-Pacific region. U.S. markets took the minutes from the Federal Reserve in their stride on Tuesday, leaving stocks and longer-dated bonds slightly lower by the close. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq snapped a five-day winning streak, as the Fed indicated monetary policy must stay restrictive. The S&P 500 dipped 0.2%, closing at 4,538. The Dow slipped 63 points, or 0.2%, to end at 35,088. The Nasdaq Composite fell 0.6% to 14,200. 
After the bell, chipmaker NVIDIA reported revenues tripled in the fiscal fourth quarter as the AI chip boom continues. It reported earnings per share of $4.02 compared to market expectations of $3.36. NVIDIA's revenue grew 206% year over year during the quarter ended October the 29th. Net income at 9.24 billion US dollars was up from, from 680 million in the same quarter a year ago. However, shares of NVIDIA fell one and a half percent in after hours trading after the company called for a negative impact in the next quarter because of export restrictions affecting sales to organizations in China and other countries. The yield on the 10-year Treasury fell two basis points to 4.4%. That's close to a two-month low and well below the 2007 highs of 5% it touched in October. The two-year yield fell three basis points to 4.88%. Oil prices were largely unchanged Tuesday after rallying the past two sessions as traders await a meeting of OPEC on Sunday. The Brent crude contract for January rose 0.2% to settle at $82.45 a barrel. The dollar index rose 0.1% to 103.6 on Tuesday, rebounding marginally from its lowest level since late August. The Japanese yen rallied for a fourth consecutive day yesterday to reach its strongest level against the dollar since mid-September before giving up those gains to end the day unchanged at 148.35 yen to the dollar. China's central bank central strengthened the yuan reference rate, pushing the currency to a five-month high against the US dollar. Offshore yuan broke through the 7.14 renminbi mark for the first time since July to trade at 7.1372 renminbi. And that was the sixth, day of, sixth straight day of gains for the Chinese currency. Mainland Chinese stocks saw their gains evaporate with the Shanghai Composite flat at 3,068 after earlier in the day hitting its highest level in a month. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index gave up gains of 1.6% to end the day a third of a percent lower. That's 44 points, closing out at 17,734. Hong Kong listed property developers ended the day higher on the report about China drafting a whitelist of 50 property firms eligible for funding. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index, which tracks Hong Kong listed Chinese developers, closed 2.1% higher. Sunak China gained 12% after the property developer said it had satisfied conditions for a long-awaited offshore debt restructuring. That will be the first of its kind since the crisis in China's property sector erupted. And today, futures markets pointing to a, to a decline of about 140 points for the Hang Seng at the open, that's around 0.8%, should start just below 17,600. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which once again you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our midweek guests. We have with us our regular Wednesday correspondents, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, Enzio von Fahl. Morning, Enzio. Morning to you, Peter. And also joining us, Nitin Dielders, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Good to see you again, Nitin. Morning. Good to see you too, Peter. The minutes from the Fed's October 31st, November the 1st interest rate setting meeting, at which officials held borrowing costs at a 22-year high, show policymakers have little urgency to raise rates again. The minutes reported that all officials are still committed to proceeding carefully on future rate decisions. However, the minutes also showed that FOMC members expo- express little appetite for cutting interest rates anytime soon, particularly as inflation remains well above their 2% target. Committed members were worried that inflation could be stubborn or even move higher and that more may need to be done. 
and they said policy will need to stay restrictive until data shows inflation on a convincing track back to the central bank's 2% goal. And data over the coming months would clarify the progress against inflation, the minutes emphasised. Um, NGO, um, they're all sticking to the script there, aren't they, um, about uh, the, the path for interest rates. But I guess that even if they thought interest rates needed to be cut, they just can't say it at the moment, can they? They can't say it, but I also don't think they can feel it because they've made so many mistakes in the past that they don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past, this time around having been too loose for too long. They don't want to be now all of a sudden cutting ahead of the game. I still think there's a lot of structural supply side inflation going on, food, weather, labor markets, people not wanting to work. Not, and so I think that those things are going to keep that inflation rate well above the 2% of that consumer price outlays index that they actually use. And you say they don't want to make another mistake because their first mistake was um, leaving it too late to raise Quite. interest rates. But are they making a second mistake by now leaving interest rates too restrictive and, and pushing the economy towards recession? I don't think so, because I think that what you'll find is that the bond yield also will keep on pushing up because of increased debt issuance by the government this until the 19th of January, which is the big day for the U.S. federal deficit problems yet again, and of course, corporate debt issuance. So I think that you'll find that the rates will rise more at the long end of the curve, and that's why they can at least put on hold. But I don't think it would be a mistake to keep them there for some time myself. Mm. Nitin, what, what do you think about the, the minutes here? No, I agree with Enzio. I mean, I don't think there's any reason to lower rates. Um, most of the numbers that you're seeing are pretty solid. Um, they're not maybe as great as they were at the beginning of the year, but you don't want them to be because then you're going to be worrying about the fact that rates are going to continue to rise. So I think, you know, where they're at at the moment is actually a pretty stable place. Quite happy to leave the rates at, as, as it is. Let, let the markets or let the economy absorb the rates and then you can yeah. probably make a better Sensible. judgment. Um, there's no point raising then cutting you know it just becomes too um slapdash if you ask yeah <laughs> and change, yeah, yeah. Just, you know there's no consistency so i think what they want to do is just keep at these levels <laughs> let's see how the economy does really absorb it and then mid-year maybe they can reassess and uh, decide whether they're going to lower it or keep them steady or maybe even raise them again towards the end of next year even if they keep the rates steady at, at the current 5.25 to 5.15, with inflation slowing down, the real Fed funds rate actually, of course, rises also, so that yeah. might bite a little bit. So how do they get themselves from this position now, where they're all singing from the same hymn sheet, saying rates higher for longer? At some point, they're going to have to start saying, well, what is it that would make us cut rates, or we're getting close to the point at which we would start um, cutting rates? How do, how do they get there? Do, do they wait until um, inflation hits their target of 2%, or do they start talking about it some point beforehand? No, I think they, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all going to come down to what they're seeing within the markets. Now, if people start returning into the uh, labour market, that's going to have some sort of impact on the wage growth. And I think that's a big part that, uh, that they look at as well. Um, it's not necessarily just only the price of goods. It's the, it's the job wage growth. And that's mm. been pretty sticky at a high level. So I think if you get people coming back into the market, maybe they can offer lower wages. You don't get such high wage growth. That maybe be one sign. Um, you get oil prices coming down, you know, there's that, that will have some sort of effect on the overall CPI number. And that's already been happening. Um, you look at food prices. So they'll take the overall picture. And if they start seeing things happen early, I think they will then start talking about awesome. the potential to cut rates. But why does it have to be cut rates? Why are we so obsessed with cutting rates? Yeah. There could be a situation where actually inflation picks up, 
wage growth still remains high and they might have to raise rates further. Or we have the worst of both worlds, slower growth, which is what I still yeah. think with the higher rates biting and then um, but um, higher inflation, what Nitin yeah. was just saying, for me again, because of these supply side structural factors very much with the mm. food, the weather, the labour markets. But I am worried that um, the, the risk is not actually knitting that inflation goes up and the Fed has to raise rates again. It's actually the, the opposite, that maybe they get to the 2% target and then inflation carries on falling, goes mm. straight through the floor at zero and turns into deflation. Isn't there a risk of that happening? Then the Fed will be forced to really cut rates very quickly, wouldn't they? Yeah, for sure. And there's, there's a risk of anything, right, <laughs> at the end of the day. It's a probability. Um, yeah. Because the data is saying that inflation is coming down really quite fast now. Yeah, but, but why? I mean, if we look at, like I said, if you take each of the individual numbers, you, take out, you strip out the oil and food, it's not really coming down that much. It's, it's really the, it's the volatility of the, oil, uh, of the energy and food prices. Mm. So you take those out. If you actually look at the rest of the numbers, I mean, I was looking at some of the numbers and just going shopping, some of the retail numbers for luxury goods was up like 14% or something. Mm. You know, so it's not across the board. Okay, not everyone's going to buy luxury goods. I get that. But it's not across this board where things are coming mm. down. There are some strong numbers in there that are still pointing to high inflation. And what about the European Central Bank? Christine Lagarde warned yesterday it's too early there as well to start declaring victory in the push to tame inflation. The only problem the ECB has got is it's got quite a weak economy, hasn't it? Uh, particularly in some of the, uh, in Germany, which is the, the largest economy in the EU. Yeah, Europe worries me a little bit because exactly what uh, NZO was talking a, a bit earlier about the stagflation and that kind of situation, because yeah. they can't get inflation under control because it's more of a global impact mm. on the inflation side, but their economy themselves are struggling. Big Biggest time. geopolitical yeah. risk around, in my mind, because they nobody talks about Europe, no armies, no work ethic, nothing. It's all mush. <laughs> <laughs> You're not very positive about Europe. No, not very much, <laughs> having lived there so long. Is, are we seeing stagflation in Europe? Is, is that because inflation is still pretty high, isn't it? And the economy is yeah. really floundering at the moment. Is that stagflation that we're looking at there? I think so. I think uh, I would agree with uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, good I'm, point. I said that earlier, and I think so. I mean, I think that is the biggest worry, and I totally agree with Enzio. Is nobody really talks about Europe, but it is a major issue, and the work ethic is really just... Well, why work? If you're going to be taxed at 90%, True. then you may as well sit on the piazza and have a coffee all day because to work is, is, is totally meaningless, basically. And you get great, you get great social welfare out Absolutely. of not working, yeah. so yeah, why not? Yeah. Why would you work? <laughs> <laughs> With escalator clauses built in, so you always have a rising sort of pension. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move to China then. Um, it's being reported that Chinese regulators are drafting a list of 50 developers eligible for a range of financing. This is the latest effort to try and put a floor under the property crisis. China Vanki, Sazen Group and Longfor are apparently among companies that have been named in a draft of the so-called white list. It sounds like to me um, that this is a sign that uh, there, there are credit problems, but Beijing is looking to try and address those credit issues of the big developers. Well, we've all known about the credit problems for the last year, two years. Mm. Um, that hasn't changed. Um, I think what the central government's trying to do is just trying to provide a little bit of confidence to some people um, and allow some of these developers to go out and get another round of debt financing. Um, will it work? It's anyone's guess. I mean, I think... Hasn't not, worked so far, has no, it? And I don't think anyone offshore is going to take on any debt, so it's got to be a very much an onshore play. And then how much money is going around onshore that can take up that? It's going to be very difficult. I mean, if you ask me, I think it needs a full clean-up. It's not one of these, let's just give 
allow these people to go and uh, raise debts. To me, you actually need to see blow-ups, you need to see mergers, you need to just maybe just completely decimate the market and then start again. That's my And opinion. let property prices drop and find their but, true level. Exactly. Do you see, um, both of you gentlemen, do you see an implosion like in Japan, that it, it doesn't affect external markets, but certainly the, the domestic market, it just implodes? I can, but I just think the central government will just do everything it possibly yes. can to try okay, and stop yeah, it. Well, that's, yeah, and yeah. I think that's going to be the difference is when you've got a regime which is there for life or there, you know, mm. there's there's no democracy. Um, you're not going to choose another party. You will try to do everything because you don't want a revolution, right? Yes. And I think that's going to be what they'll do is they'll, they'll do everything in their power. Well, as I said, whether they can do it and can stop it. It's Including eventually bailing out developers. In fact, yeah, I think so. Yes. Mm. But it's not working so far because if you look at the new home prices, uh, the, the, the falls are picking up now. China's new home prices down the most in eight years. Property investment we saw from that, uh, from the data last week, declined 9.3%. That's getting worse as well. None of these measures, which are costing a lot of money, oh. are, are really helping, are they? But I think that's because of the China's core problem, which has nothing to do with reflation or any of that, which is that as long as they keep on thwarting the private sector to create jobs, demand-driven jobs, not supply-driven make-work stuff, mm-hmm. demand-driven jobs, as long as they keep thwarting the private sector in trying to do this, the economy is going to go nowhere in a hurry, and that's, that's a concern. Mm-hmm. And you have the other factor that they built, overbuilt so much mm-hmm. that it just got a bit silly. Right? Mm. We've got I mean, to find the price, the clearing price of all that excess property. Exactly. That's really what's yeah. needed. I mean, the good thing in China, I mean, I'm not sure if I'm being controversial by saying it, but a lot of buildings just naturally fall on their own after about 10, 15 years. So yeah. people do have to look at new yeah. pieces. You don't want to be living in them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the ideal way of fixing the property crisis. Hoping they fall down, but... <laughs> Well, what about here? Sun Hung Kai, Hong Kong's biggest developers, lowered the floor for new home prices in the city. Um, it set prices at a six-year low, um, according to, uh, to Singtel. I mean, developers here facing a lot of pressure as well, aren't they, to, to cut prices further? I think what's interesting over here is that you're seeing it in the primary market, finally. And we've had a massive divide between the primary and the secondary market. I do believe that if you want to actually properly find a floor in Hong Kong and you want people to start getting a little bit of confidence, you've got to drop the... Um, that 50% down payment on secondary homes. Um, you've got to just say, let's make it 30, 20 even, mm. and allow more supply to come into the market because then all of a sudden you'll get a proper market which is trading as it should mm. and you'll find the right price. People will want to upgrade. At the moment, people can't upgrade. If you've got a $15 million home and you want to upgrade to a $20 million home, you can't because you've got to find an extra so much money. Um, and that's a kind of that's hurting and that, that hurts a lot. And I know a lot of people like me, for example, who are waiting on the sidelines just to try and get something. You don't want to live in a cardboard box or shoe mm. box. Mm. So you want to live in something where you've got a bit of space, but you can't afford it. because Not because you can't afford to do it, but you can't put the 50% down payment. Yes. Or if you do, it sucks up. Or the tax also, the 15%. And the, yeah. The, the, I mean, I'm a first-time home buyer, so I won't have that kind of tax. Um, but okay, it's, yes. it's finding that 50%. It's like, how do you, you've got to put down 10 million Hong Kong yeah. dollars. That's a lot of money yeah, to put down, yeah, you know, yeah. as mm. opposed to putting 6 million. You yeah, know, that yeah. 4 million difference is quite huge. Yes. Um, so I think that will actually really find Hong But at the same time, you know, they, tr- they can talk up the economy all they want. There is still a bit of a net outflow of people. That's not helping. Mm. I don't um, think Happy Hong Kong is going to help, and but the happy, nightstand music yeah. stand is going to help. So I think a lot of their measures, while well-intentioned, are not necessarily the right measures, and they probably should listen to some of their expert advisors 
or talk to people and you know like talk real to the people. people yeah talk to the real people it's yeah. oil and water here it's yeah. the the government's up there and we're we plebeians are down here and there's no mixture of the oil and the water mm. Let me ask you about a, a couple of articles that are, that are of interest at the mm. moment. First one, um, The Economist, talking about Japan and mm. asking is Japan's economy at a turning point. A prominent Japanese economist, Aoki Masahiko, uh, once predicted it was going to take 30 years for his country's economy to return, for, to emerge from the lost decades that began in the early 90s. That's when an asset bubble burst and uh, that's... Uh, that, really sent the uh, the economy into recession uh, he re- he reckoned that it's going to take a generational change for for a new model to uh, to emerge and he's saying basically that new model has emerged now and that uh, things are now starting to look up uh, for for the japanese economy and uh, it's awakening from its decades long uh, torpor so do you agree with that enzio i do i think it's i changed the grammar a little bit i think it's more it is emerging as opposed to has emerged if i may parochially say but i think that the key is the change in the in the soft wiring the mindset the psychology of mr and mrs watanabe in japan um first of all you've got on the labor side of it that not as that the market the, that the labor markets are being squeezed because not as many old people are going old people are going back into the labor market so you have like in the u.s like in europe also like here people not wanting to work in that course then drives up wages which is pretty good the capital and the planned investment the planned capital investment seems to be booming it's actually at its highest level since the bank of japan collecting data began collecting data about 40 years ago 1983 and very importantly the generational shift is afoot the mr and mrs young watanabe are not now willing to just go for lifetime employment at a fixed salary, man. They want to actually move, become more entrepreneurial. The best of the mm-hmm. brightest and creators start their own firm. So I think there are mindset changes, and that's really the key. You can build, it's, it's not Keynesian, it's not monetary, it's actually, it's a mindset change, which is very much at the heart of this. And that's why it ain't going to happen tomorrow morning. I think it is happening, but it's going. But at least it, it's it's a good offset to the China investment in my mind for some years now, because I think that Japan is at least on the way up, whilst China is kind of a little bit. Um, there goes our submarine. Yeah, well, that sort of chimes a little bit with an FT article, which was sort of almost the opposite of this, which was saying that uh, that China's in decline. But let's stick with Japan first yes. of all, uh, Nitin. What, what do you think? Do you think that we've had several false dawns mm. in Japan over that past 30 years, <laughs> but do you think this time it's for real? Um, I, think, I agree with Enzio on a lot of points, but I think there's two caveats that we've got to watch out for. One is obviously the demographics. That hasn't changed. So they need to start importing labour. Mm. Yes, um, good and point. Because, you know, as the aging population happens, wage growth will happen because you've just got a naturally smaller labor force. So. That's it. Um, but you do need, in order to get the real growth, you do need to start importing labor and you need to start getting that demographic more in your favor where the import of labor starts having babies and they become jackets. And get more women into the workforce. And absolutely, yeah. yes. Um, and the second caveat I have is the central bank needs to start doing more because... You've got inflation, say, at around 3%. They're refusing to budge with their, you know, really tight monetary policy. Um, and they're saying they're waiting for, you know, the labor market and all this to catch mm. up and people to start spending. It doesn't necessarily happen that way. You know, uh, that in Good Japan, point. they are net savers. So if you can start raising that interest rate and they're getting more on their cash and on their bank, they'll actually go and start spending that. So you can start, you can actually start that drive. So I think those are my two caveats, is the central bank being way too cautious, and they probably need to start raising rates a bit. 
Um, and one way or another, you need to start importing or getting people to move into Japan and immigrate to Japan and get that population at the young end uh, back up. But okay. outside of that, I agree with the rest of what I'm saying. I guess my hope okay. there, and not negating what, at all what you're saying, just to build on that, is that on the productivity side, if you do have more capital investment coming in, that at least will somewhat mitigate the labor force yeah. problems and all that. But it won't totally, it won't totally obviate it. No, exactly. Can I add a third caveat, maybe, mm. see what you think about that? Government debts, huge ah. amounts of debt uh, that the government has, which must be a constraint on growth, mustn't it? Particularly if interest rates do actually um, go up, the, the burden of servicing that debt is, is going to become astronomical at some point. It does, um, and it constrains what the government can do. But again, I think if you really want that economy, you want to see the private side you know, really flourish. Yeah. Um, and that not, doesn't necessarily play into the yeah. government debt side. So I think yeah. that's where I was going back, or you know, where Andy mm. is talking about the capital investment. If you can get that to come from the private side, if you can import labour and build up your private side, you can negate a lot of that uh, negativity from the government. And the mindset debt. change also. I think yeah. that's, that's very important. It goes, as we all know, beyond the fiscal and the monetary mix. The, the problem is, though, that even though um, inflation is going up and wa- wages, sorry, wages are going up, inflation's going up even more yeah. at the moment. So the it's weekend. sort of the, the pe- people don't feel that they're better off, do they? Not, not while their wages are, are growing too slowly compared with inflation. No, exactly. And I think that's what the central government keeps saying is wage inflation will catch up with... Next year the Shunto comes in, yeah. Um, But do you want to keep waiting? I mean, this is, as I said, this is where I go with the central government probably needs to be a bit more proactive. I get it. 30 years of hurt or 40 years, however long it's been, you want to be a bit cautious. But I think this is not the time to be cautious. It's time to actually, you know... Stop when really I was covering Japan, it was all just sort of, it, it takes time, Enzio-san. Well, that, obviously that mindset hasn't changed. So I hope, and that's why I'm, I hope that the youth do come in a bit more forcefully and the women and get and rattle up these corporate boards a bit. Well, isn't that also, that's another interesting aspect of this, isn't it? Because combined now, for the first time, really, we're seeing these corporate governance reforms, this name and shame list for companies that are trading below a book value of one, um, you know, the asset doubling plan, trying to get savings to to move out of cash and into the markets. All these things we haven't really seen before, have we? This is is new and it's leading to a lot more M&A activity. And done by the local, not just the foreign activists, yeah. but also the local mm. activists. I think that's, that's, again, very important from a mindset change. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're a local and you're just seeing a declining standard, so to speak, or living standard, or, you know, you're going to start at some point questioning things. Um, mm. I'm, I'm shocked it's taken <clears throat> over 30 years to get there, 35 years nearly, but... You know, at least we're getting somewhere. And, and I totally agree with Enzi. It's the youth, and the youth are driving it. And I, maybe the fact that they're seeing what's going on elsewhere and what's happened elsewhere, that's now hitting home. Mm. And they're realizing, why are we not? Why can't we do this? Why aren't we getting Also coming thing? back from abroad, from their, yeah. from their overseas universities, coming back yeah. and, and saying, why aren't we changing? But Japan's got a way to catch up now, hasn't it? Because um, its share of global GDP is about 4%. Yes. So, and it used to be, you know, what, 1990, yeah. it was getting close to 10%, yeah. I think, wasn't it? So it, it's lost a lot of ground and it's got a lot of ground to, to catch up. Um, yeah. But the question is, does it need to get back to that 10%? Mm. I mean, mm. you take, I mean, if we were being an idealistic and you took everything on a fair share based on population, it should not have 10%. It's not got 10% of the world's population, for example. Mm. Mm. Um, so uh, it's, a hard, it's a hard question, yes. In terms of where they were, it's lost a lot of ground. 
where it should get back to. I think at the end of the day, if you can get people coming back, coming into the country, you can get growth sustainable, um, wage inflation higher than normal inflation, all of those factors coming into play, um, I think they'll be quite happy. It'll be quite happy days. And I think one thing that NZA did say is it's a better play over the next few years than China. That I probably that I would agree with. It's interesting that article came at the same time over yes. the weekend that there was one in the FT yeah, which talks about China, yeah, uh, yeah. saying China's rise is uh, is reversing. That came from Mushir Sharma, chairman of Rockefeller um, International, and he's basically saying that after rising uh, from you know two percent of GDP, global GDP, mm. to over eighteen percent in twenty twenty one, that has now all gone into reverse, and China's share of the world economy is now starting yeah. to to slip. Um, is this the mirror image of what's going on in Japan? I think there is a bit of that, but I, I've got to say a priori that I don't really go much for these share of global GDP because I mean you can inflate GDP numbers just by pumping up the prime by 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 prime pumping the prime and uh, priming the pump excuse me and all that kind of stuff. So I think the key issue for China is very much the social unrest springing and violence corporate in, in China not springing just from the fact that the place ain't growing no more. And that's, again, because of this whole thing that I keep on rattling on about, not only I, that the private sector is not being allowed to create the jobs. They do need um, more um, good things with China are that the R&D productivity has to grow, and it has to grow because more and more foreigners will have to come back into China. Yes, they have to come back in because they need to take part, partake, partake in that Chinese domestic market to sell their goods. And I think that will happen. I also think that the urbanization rate of China, which is 85% of, for the U, it's 85% for the US, 91% for Japan, 65% for China. So it's way below the urbanization rates. That again, more urbanization means more growth. So I think there are, there are straws in the wind, but again, until they allow that private sector to really get a move on, it's just not going to happen. And that's where the Japanification risk, the Japanese beach whale problem comes in. Mm. Uh, he argues in this article that although um, China is going to reach its target of 5%, that is yeah. inflation adjusted. Yeah. And you can do all sorts of things with that course, GDP yeah, deflator yeah. to make yeah. that target hit whatever you yeah. like. He says the real growth is more like 2.5%. It's a bit of a joke. I mean, all property prices down, retail sales is only up 2%. You know, like you go through all the numbers and then somehow you just, get this GDP figure of 5%. It's yeah. just... It's by through in, in adjusting it by the inflation. You, you can make it whatever you want yeah, if you do that. But it's, a, it's what China has always done. This is what the GDP growth is going to be and that's what we're going to yeah, publish. Yeah. It doesn't matter what all the real numbers yeah. tell you, that's what we're going to publish. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, no, I think China's... We all know China's got massive problems. We all know it's gone in reverse. I don't think what the FT article has said is anything that people haven't known for the mm. last two, three years. Yes, um, right. China has been a problem child for the last two years and two, three years. And it's not coming out of it because the, exactly what NZA said, you, you're not allowing any private sector participation. You turn around and you give this rhetoric about how we're going to boost private sector um, participation. And then one, literally not even one day later, but every private company has to have a state official in it. Every, it has to be state approved. And we could only be in these sectors. That's not private sector yeah, participation. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Private so, yeah, sector yeah. is about creativity, about coming into new, creating new markets, creating new industries, creating all of that kind of stuff. And, and knowing demand. And knowing where the demand, demand is. is you know? yeah, yeah. And here, you're not allowing any of it. It's like, you can go into EV. Well, there's about 35 EV companies there. Why do you need another one? You know, let's 
be creative. Let's find new industries. Let's build on that. Let people decide what they feel makes sense and let them be creative and create their own businesses. Uh, to me, I know you want to control your economy. I know you want to control your country. Mm. But you can't do that at the detriment of your country because at some point it's going to catch up with you. Quite the opposite. You mm. can only control it if you keep people happy. Yeah. And, and then, they, then they will see that you're creating the wealth, the prosperity that they want. Of course, then they'll play ball. And personally, I don't know that many people in China today that is happy. Yeah. And when I speak to them, they are pretty upset about where things are. But obviously, they can't publicly say it so loudly, but there are a lot of people who are not happy with where the economy is. Mm. And I think that is something that Chinese are very passive people. So may, I'm not saying there's going to be a revolution or something, but there will be a point in where they... You know, Z has to start. It's a pain point. This. Yeah, exactly. Because there will be enough anger that will be created at some point. Okay. Well, look, it's good to hear your thoughts on all of that. Uh, a lot of interesting topics there. You heard Nitin Dialdus, who is Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital, and Enzio von Fahl, who's Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. <laughs> I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Morning, sir. Uh, good opportunity to get your thoughts about the APEX Summit. We've been talking about that uh, a bit this week from a US um, and China perspective. But what about from a Japan uh, pers- perspective? President Xi Jinping and Fumio Kishida did meet on the sidelines of that summit. Did anything substantial come out of it? Well, I think, you know, for Prime Minister Kishida, it was a very nice break from domestic affairs. Uh, he's had a rough <laughs> year. His Approval ratings are as low as 21 percent, which, oh, really? uh, which makes Joe Biden seem popular at the moment. <laughs> and so I, I, I think for him, any chance to escape Japan was a nice respite. But also, I think it was a chance for him to flex his um, diplomatic muscles a bit. I mean, I think his strong suit has always been foreign relations. His approval ratings have always been highest when he's been a, a big player in the world stage, whether it be at APEC or G7 or with Ukraine. And so I think for him, it was a great moment to meet with Xi Jinping, as you said. It was a great moment for him also to meet with President Yoon of South Korea um, to forge closer ties there and also to spend time with Joe Biden. Uh, you know, certainly one of Kishida's biggest achievements, I think, in the, the view of many Japanese has been to develop a close relationship with the U.S. I think when you know, Shinzo Abe years ago was close with Trump, but his relationship was with Trump, not with the U.S. And I think that in many ways, Prime Minister Kishida has done a better job of allying Japan uh, with the U.S. as equals, not as a, a junior partner. So I think, you know, for Prime Minister Kishida, it was a nice chance to, in many ways, remind the Japanese people who were turning against him that he still has a bit of spring in his step, if you will. Mm. And the, the, the meeting between um, President Biden and President Xi did go some way to sort of resetting the relationship. At least they're talking and they agreed on some things about reestablishing military contacts and dealing with the fentanyl uh, crisis. So there, there was a sort of a sense that there had been a bit of a reset. Is there the same in Japan-China relations? Has there been a bit of an improvement as a result of this meeting? Well, I think any discussions you have between the Japanese prime minister and Xi Jinping is a step in the right direction. Um, this is the most substantive contact we've seen in over a year. So you can argue that uh, at a moment when China and the U.S. are trying to work things out, I think China sees Japan as an important ally in many ways, as well as a, as a kind of, uh, you know, another uh, leg in that stool, mm-hmm. if you will. 
And so I think here the perception is that, you know, Japanese-Chinese relations are, you know, never easy and they're not particularly on a good path at the moment, but they're on a better path today than they were since they were, say, two weeks ago. So it's a bit of progress, but we'll see. Mm. Now, what happens, dare we imagine, if Donald Trump comes to power in a year's time? Is all of this upended? All of it is upended. I think everything, <laughs> everything is upended. I think one of the interesting things is I've kind of argued that I think China would actually welcome Trump coming back because I think in many ways, President Biden has been a lot more meticulous and a lot more surgical in his efforts to rein in China and reduce and limit China's ability to access key technology. Trump was you know, a bit of a, a bumble bus of a leader. I mean, he just basically flailed around wildly and China found ways around him. But Biden's been a harder nut to crack, I think, uh, for the Chinese. So in many ways, anything uh, that would undermine America's role in the world and in Asia would be in China's best interest. So in many ways, I think China would actually welcome Trump returning. Japan less so because of the I think that there's a perception that U.S. Japanese relations are on better. They're on a better, better footing right now than they have been in many years and Trump coming back would not be in anyone's best interest here in Tokyo. Mm, but I presume Japan and many other countries around the world have got to plan for the possibility that <laughs> he could be back because it, it's certainly not out of the bounds of, of possibilities, is it? Oh, they do. I mean, in many ways they do. But I think, you know, here in Japan, I think that there's there's a, a general, the general conventional wisdom is that, you know, Trump coming back as a non-starter. Um, they just don't see any scenario <laughs> where that's possible they could be wrong and as an american i hope that uh, hope the conventional wisdom here is correct because I, I just you know for me i just see trump coming back as an existential threat not only to america but to the global order i could be being overly dramatic here but when you look at the the smoke signals coming out of mar-a-lago at the moment in terms of what trump would want to do in a second term nothing about this sounds very good to me Mm. It sounds like it will be a very vindictive presidency. He's going to take revenge on all the people Indeed. that he believes have slighted him over the last few years. Absolutely. And, you know, Asia in many ways would be in harm's way because Trump, you know, Trump has a very 1980s worldview. Um, and so in many ways, anything that he can do to make Asia's life more difficult, he will do. I, th I think Trump still thinks of uh, the, the the world through the prism of the Plaza Accord back in the mid 1980s, a hotel that he once owned, by the way. So I think, in many ways, Asia would be in harm's way um, in any second Trump term. Mm. Now, what's happened to Japan's economy? The the figures that came out a lot worse than expected. <laughs> GDP declined 2.1 percent on an annualized basis, much deeper than what econ economists were forecasting. They were saying a 0.4 percent um, fall. Are we um, heading for recession here? Well, it seems like we are. I mean, I think in many ways, this is the China factor, right? I mean, in many ways, when you look at what the BOJ has been saying over the last six months, the Bank of Japan is a lot more concerned about what's happening in China in terms of the feedback effects on Japan than they are about domestic trends. The irony, of course, is that with the yen being so weak, Japan's experiencing a bit of a tourism boom at the moment, which you would expect to help the economy, but it's not working out that way overall. And I think in many ways... The idea of the Bank of Japan changing policy, the Bank of Japan tapering, that's off the table for now. And you see the government, Prime Minister Kishida, ramping up stimulus, looking to give, you know, basically hand out cash to households. He's talking about tax cuts for, for the middle class. And so Japan's economy is not ending the year as, as Japan had hoped.
Mm. And there was an interesting article in The Economist um, over the weekend with, with the headline, <laughs> Is Japan's Economy at a Turning Point? It was written by Aoki, uh, Aoki Mashiko, um, a prominent Japan economist, once predicted it was going to take 30 years for the country economy to emerge from the lost decades. Well, they're saying it basically has. A new model now has developed. Uh, we're starting to see uh, um, wages rising faster than any time since the 1980s. Um, and the economy really um, is, is now in good shape. Do, would you agree with that? Well, you know, I would argue that I've I've read a similar story like this every decade for the last <laughs> for the last certainly for certainly for the last twenty years. Um, every five to ten years, there's a moment where the global economy rediscovers Japan and says, "Huh, Japan." I think it. Look, I think at the moment, Japan is experiencing a bit of a renaissance in terms of corporate governance. That is real. Uh, the the extent to which Japanese companies are diversifying boards. The extent to which Japanese companies are trying to increase returns on equity, returns on investment, that's all real. Um, but in many ways, Japan Inc. has not changed as much as I think the outside world would hope. Um, for example, Japan is not producing a great number of uh, tech unicorns, right? One of the problems is that Japan's, you know, basically venture capital uh, enterprise, if you will, is, you know, it helps startup companies to create jobs, but it doesn't help them to grow to midsize or large companies. It's a bit like South Korea in that way. Some startups, but not a lot of economic room, a lot of oxygen for them to grow. And the other problem, too, is wages are rising here, sure, but they're not rising as fast as inflation in general. And they're playing catch up from 30 years of not rising at all. And so, yes, I mean, you can argue Japan is on a, on a better footing today than it was, say, five years ago. But there are headwinds coming. Um, one of those headwinds is China. Uh, if China is, is entering into this downshift period where it will be growing, say, 4% uh, for the next couple of years, that is not in Japan's best interest. And the U.S. is buckling under the weight well, there was a rising interest rates. There was also a mirror image article in the Financial Times, which <laughs> talked about China and, and said almost the opposite. China's rise um, is over. So these two articles sort of came out at the same time, being almost sort of like mirror images of each other. And the, the FT one was arguing why, um, you know, real growth in China is only about two and a half percent now, um, whereas it was our, um, the Economist is arguing that you know growth is going to pick up in uh, in Japan. But on on that wages in, uh, inflation scenario, have have Japanese Japanese people now got out of a deflationary mindset because that's been part of the damaging part of the process, hasn't it? They just keep thinking prices are going to keep falling, so I don't need to buy big ticket items now. Are they now getting used to price rises and, and thinking maybe the opposite, that prices are going to go up? Well, not so much because one of the problems is that demographically, Japan is geared more towards deflation than inflation. I mean, when you have so many people over the age of 65, um, that is an inherently deflationary scenario because, mm -hmm. you know, people who are 65, 75, they're not spending the way someone who's 21 does. And young workers are not making the kinds of salaries that their parents did. Um, there's a lot of concern, you know, for example, here in the bar and restaurant industry, a lot of young Japanese just aren't going out and drinking anymore. They're not drinking wine or beer or sake. They're drinking soft drinks when they go out because they're cheaper. And so that's a, a grave concern for, you know, some parts of, of the hospitality industry. But I think one of the biggest problems we see in Japan is just the lack of top-down reform, right? I mean, Shinzo Abe uh, came to power more than 10 years ago. He came and went without great change. 
Prime Minister Kashida has been talking about a new capitalism to reboot those changes, but there has not been a lot done to, for example, liberalize labor markets, to increase innovation, increase productivity, to empower women. There's been a lot of talk about it, and I like a lot of what I hear. There just hasn't been a lot of action, and we need more of that. And I think one of the things you're seeing right now from the prime minister is lots of spending, You know, lots of talk about middle-class tax cuts, lots of handouts, um, lots of talk about the BOJ, perhaps even pumping more liquidity into the economy. Not a lot of uh, big bang structural reforms. And that's something we need to see more of. And I'd love to see more of that in the year ahead. We'll see. Mm. But the one area where there has been reforms, and it appears to have had an impact, is corporate reform, doesn't it? We're seeing more M&A activity now. We've got this name and shame list that the chairman of the Tokyo Stock Exchange is going to start uh, in January to try and boost shareholder value. Um, that's all real, isn't it? It is real. I think um, the rubber hits the road moment is going to be when CEOs feel confident about the outlook for the economy to fatten paychecks significantly. You know, again, you do see paychecks rising here and there, but generally wages are not rising at, at the rate that I think Japan had hoped, say, 10 years ago. They've been hoping for this, this, um, this sort of virtuous cycle of wage gains and consumption gains. And companies are doing better and shareholders are getting bigger dividends, and that's wonderful. But these dividends, these benefits are not being shared widely with workers, and that's what we need to see more of. And so, you know, at the moment when we see Japanese CEOs feeling a lot more confident to fatten paychecks on a consistent basis, that's when all this becomes real. And so I'm hoping in the year ahead we'll see more of that. But with China slowing, with the U.S. buckling under the weight of high interest rates and global, you know, basically geopolitics being in the state that they are, it's an open question whether or not Japan Inc. will finally, finally feel confident enough to share the wealth. Mm. We're, we're in this slightly bizarre position, or it seems it when you look at it from outside. Of Here you have the Bank of Japan going all out to try and create inflation, and then you have the government announcing another budget to give handouts to, to soften the impact of inflation on consumers. It seems like you need to put them all in a room and get them to thrash this out somehow. Well, I think part of the problem, too, is that Japan is getting bad inflation, right? I mean, the inflation Japan wanted was, was basically, you know, wage push inflation where you know, demand would increase because the economy is doing better. What we're seeing is Japan's importing a lot of higher inflation from elevated energy and food prices. And when you look at the crisis in Israel and with Hamas and the, the broader Middle East being drawn into this, will we see higher gas prices in the year ahead? So far, we haven't seen a big spike in gas prices. But that's the big problem. But Japan is finally getting inflation, just not the kind of inflation it wanted. And so there is this disconnect between how policymakers are responding to it and how consumers are feeling it. William, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. And thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. In the second part of the show, I'm going to talk about batteries for electric vehicles with Gerard Bowen, the CEO of US-listed The Metals Company. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.